Welcome to the Optionality Game, a conversation with successful leaders about evaluating your options, taking the right risks, and creating your own luck. I'm your co-host, Cooper Schoenthaler. I've loved entrepreneurship since I started my first business, cleaning refrigerators, when I was eight years old. Now I'm a third-year student at Northeastern University, exploring the world of business through positions in finance and consulting. I'm your other co-host, Alston Thomas. Spending my weekends at garage sales growing up, finding items to resell on eBay, had instilled a love for business long before starting university. Now at Northeastern, I'm a fourth-year student and have worked in early-stage startups in venture capital in the past. Each of us want to build companies that positively impact the world, and so at Northeastern, we became immersed in the world of business. But along the way, we found that the path after graduation is not as straightforward as we originally thought. We see people graduate picking the riskiest options possible, like starting a business, and still end up making millions. We see others who work hard to graduate with a safe, steady, and well-paying position at the top companies, but aren't left as fulfilled as they expected. After seeing different choices result in such different outcomes, it made us wonder, should I become another 20-something just clawing their way up the corporate ladder? Do I take the path less traveled and risk my livelihood to work at a startup? Or do I throw it all away and just become a ski bum? I've honestly given equal thought to these three options, as well as many others. This podcast is our much-needed exploration into the options that people choose, the choices they regret, and most importantly, whether they're satisfied with how it all turned out. Lessons are best conveyed by stories, and we hope to explore the career-defining moments of business leaders and change the way you think about your decisions. So welcome to the Optionality Game. Welcome to the Optionality Game a conversation with successful leaders about evaluating your options, taking the right risks, and creating your own luck. We are your hosts, Alston and Cooper. Today, we're speaking with Arun Rao, who leads the core artificial intelligence and machine learning team at Meta slash Facebook. Arun studied finance and literature and classics at the University of Pennsylvania, and he started his career in finance, eventually landing at PIMCO as a quantitative bond trader from 2012 to 2016. Arun has started two companies, including a voice-based assistant, which gives financial recommendations. And later, Arun jumped into the world of big tech by leading a team of 40 engineers at Amazon Music to build song recommendation algorithms. Finally, in March of this year, Arun became the senior product manager of artificial intelligence and machine learning over at Facebook, which of course is now called Meta. He leads over 200 engineers to tackle some of the world's toughest AI and machine learning problems. And despite this impressive career, we're actually most excited to have Arun on the optionality game because he is the epitome of a lifelong learner. He wrote an extensive history of tech called A History of Silicon Valley. He has a new Substack newsletter, uh, which was formerly a blog. He participates in crypto projects. He's an avid reader, and he is also a part-time professor at Northeastern teaching a class called Industry Disruption and Corporate Transformation, which is where Arun and I met. With that being said, we clearly have a lot to talk about, so let's jump in. We're going to start by chatting about Arun's career, and then we're going to shift into topics around AI and crypto. Arun, we are super excited to hear from someone who is so close to some of the most interesting issues surrounding AI, machine learning, blockchain, tech, and other areas. So welcome, and thank you so much for coming in. Great. Glad to be here, Cooper. Thank you. 
I have so many questions, but I'd like to start by learning a little bit more about your upbringing. Can you briefly walk us through your childhood and your path to UPenn and why you chose to study literature and finance? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up in multiple places, uh, both inside the U.S. Um, and outside the U.S. Uh, in India. Um, most of my later childhood was in South Bend, Indiana, which is a university town um, outside Chicago. Um, I was a very studious kid, uh, studying a lot of math and literature uh, through high school, and uh, decided to go to Penn because I was really interested uh, in the sort of quantitative finance they were doing there. Um, ended up, you know, doubling down and doing a lot of neat, very mathy finance stuff while at Penn, while also deciding that I liked uh, a lot of dead languages and studied a bunch of them when I was there too, which is the literature side. What are, what are some of those dead languages and how did you get that interest? So Penn is famous for having a huge language program, especially a lot of dead languages like ancient Egyptian and Coptic and Akkadian, and just a bunch of strange languages. Um, the, the three I ended up studying were Sanskrit, ancient Greek, and Latin, uh, which are the, kind of the more, more popular ones for the, for the dead languages, but uh, also just an interesting place to study them. It's kind of an interesting parallel, your experience with dead languages, and then now your experience with being at like the very forefront of AI and machine learning, which is kind of a new, a new language, right? Is there, any, is there any parallel there, any connection you can see? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, languages are construction systems for new worlds. And certainly you can go from the plain human languages into... Um, computer languages, so you know, simple ones like C and Python and Java and so on, um, all, all the way to the AIML world where um, you're built on these like lower level abstractions, but you're trying to do something different. Um, and it's a different way of thinking about the world and, and reasoning about it. And to make the connection a little sharper, um, the way the ancient Greeks or the ancient Indians saw the world to their dead languages uh, was very different than the way we see it. And likewise, I think people would kind of a CS or math background, see the world very differently. And certainly people with the machine learning world see the world differently. So and a lot of it's grounded in language. What does that mean that they see the world differently in, in what sense? Just the literally the way you, you describe objects and spaces and activities in the world are grounded in vocabulary. Um, so for example, there are all sorts of words and Greek, Latin, and Sanskrit that don't exist in English and describe very complicated concepts that exist in those worldviews. Um, and the same for, you know, modern computer languages, you know, ideas of recursion, which you don't think about um, in, in plain English um, that much. And certainly in, in machine learning, there's a bunch of concepts that are not, you know, commonly in the English worldview. That, that's super interesting. I always think of in other languages that are like, there, there are like 50 different ways to describe the color blue. And it just shows the complexity of some of these things and the way people are able to think, especially for um, multilingual speakers. Um, but, but that's really interesting. After a time at UPenn, you then decided to go into finance equipped with all these dead languages. Why did you end up leaving finance at, at PIMCO and what motivated you to get an MBA? Yeah, so um, 
finance was a great field. Uh, before the MBA, I was working at a big multifamily office. It was one of the largest ones in the world. We basically managed the money for a bunch of tech billionaires and other famous families. Um, it was a very cushy world. You kind of sat there and met managers and allocated capital. I wanted something a little more exciting. So I went and got my MBA, then went to work at PIMCO, which is um, one of the world's largest asset managers. They managed about trillion dollars in assets when I was there. Um, lots of PIMCO stories, but kind of a crazy place. You're a trading floor, you're managing an unbelievable amount of money, and there's about 100 people making all the decisions to manage this huge amount of capital. So an example of how crazy it is, I came there after my MBA, and in one of the first few months, I wanted to make some deal to invest like 50 million bucks. And I went to one of the senior traders and I was like, hey, I want to make this deal. Here are the points. Here's what I want to do. And I was explaining the deal to him. And he just stopped me and said, oh, we only want to invest 50 million. You don't need my permission to do that. You can just go do that by yourselves. If you're going to make investments in yards, i.e. billions, then come to me and get, and get a sign up for it. Um, but you kind of have the approval to do whatever you want. Um, so just going from being like nobody, an MBA student to a trading floor where I think I, have, I could trade up to $150 million a day in terms of buying and selling assets was, was a totally crazy experience. So it seems like you've been in and around the tech circle for a long time, including those first steps into finance. You didn't go to Goldman, but instead you went to a firm that helped with the family offices of tech billionaires. So how did you make that sort of first step into the tech adjacent world, even in finance? So I, I think just kind of luck slash connections slash, you know, people needing kind of some of the quantitative finance skill sets I had got me in the door. I actually worked in another family office um, on Sand Hill Road first, then worked my way to this other family office in San Francisco, the really large one. Um, and I expected my career would be mostly in finance and quantitative finance. Um, I did my first startup on the side when I was working at the family office. Um, but ultimately, you know, through PIMCO and afterwards, I decided that I want, I want to pivot to tech and have my career be more in tech than in finance. Um, and then that's a trend I've seen many people make in the last five years, by the way. So when you were on Sand Hill Road, was there like, was that the first time you thought, oh, this seems like really appealing. I want to go work among these people in Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely. So Sand Hill Road, um, I mean, we were one of the few more traditional financial firms in terms of being a, an endowment-style family office. And, you know, we'd all come in in our suits, we're all buttoned up, kind of very serious. But we were surrounded, I think, like, the benchmark office was, like, right next door. And you'd see, like, those, those people come in, like, at noon, you know, in their, like, fancy cars and, like, slippers and their, like, buttoned-down shirts um, or T-shirts. And you're like, well, I wonder if I'm on the wrong side. You know, you're like slaving away in this like, you know, eight to eight job in traditional finance uh, and the VCs and everyone else are having all the fun building stuff. So yeah, that definitely was an eye opener. Well, that's definitely a conversation and a question we've asked quite a few times. So good to get that uh, perspective. You mentioned a lot of other people going the same way. Do you think, I mean, besides the slippers and the nice cars at noon, what was the pull of Silicon Valley from Wall Street? Well, so. But by the way, I think founders and startups work harder than even people in Wall Street, and there's a lot more on the line. So I, I don't think it's necessarily because it's easier. Um, but certainly the VCs don't have as hard of a job. 
um, and often have much, much cushier lives. Um, but I, I think the poll is just the last few decades, finance and to lesser extent consulting, but, but really finance is a place that a lot of smart driven people went because you had a lot of leverage and you could get a lot of um, kind of freedom to, to build and, and do a lot of cool things. Um, but progressively since the financial crisis, that's gone away and finance has gotten ultra regulated and kind of more stodgy. Um, and a lot of the talent I've seen has now shifted to tech, which is the new frontier. Um, and, and tech's been a frontier for a long time, but I think it's gotten more attractive as a frontier because you can build and scale even faster than you could 10, 15 years ago. Um, so a lot of the talent I saw who were attracted to finance and kind of, you know, the, the high risk, high reward nature has switched over to tech. After Starbutter, you went into big tech doing that role at Amazon, and you'd just come from these worlds of startups and finance at, uh, at Starbutter and at PIMCO. So can you tell us a little bit about those just overarching big differences between the worlds you were in, in big tech and startups and Wall Street? Like, what was your first day on the job at Amazon like, and how was that different? Yeah, so there, there, there are three very different worlds. Um, Wall Street, and certainly when you're on the buy side investing, uh, it's a huge amount of pressure day by day, week by week, month by month to deliver. Um, and you can either play it safe and hug your benchmark, um, or you can take big risks and either be rewarded or punished for that. Um, but it, it's super high stress, and, and you're basically always on. The markets are, are on six days a week globally. So you're, you're never really off. The startup world is different because you're building something from scratch. You're trying to find product market fit. Um, it's really painful. It's really scary. You don't know if you're going to be able to do it. Um, you're constantly learning and iterating and you're under a different type of pressure, uh, usually knowing that you've got a certain amount of runway, a certain amount of time before everything ends. Um, and the default mode for most startups is you default dead. So you're trying to like find out what you can do to survive. So also just very high pressure, very long hours. Um, you're just turning away, trying to figure out what works for your customers. Um, big tech. I actually think is relatively cushy compared to the two. Uh, there definitely are people that work hard, but for most of the companies and most of the products, you're not taking the same amount of crazy risk that you would on, on a trading floor or on a startup. Um, it's often more structured. You, you can plan out for longer time periods for you know up to a year, two or three years. It's not you know there's not as much pressure from a day to day or week to week basis, um, and then your scale is much larger, right? Like you're dealing potentially with much larger groups of people. So uh, the impact there is interesting, but, but it's on longer time scales too. You've made a pretty big jump from corporate finance strictly into to startup. Was it because you, you thought it was kind of a, a risk worthy to take or, or what was your thought process there? Yeah, so jumping from investment management in a trading floor to startups, is a pretty untraditional path. I've seen a handful of people do it. Um, they're both high risk, high reward, um, but I, I, clearly the startup is much riskier uh, than, than trading or being on the investment floor. Um, what drew me was there were some very specific things I wanted to build within the world of social robotics and virtual assistants. Um, and ultimately, Ultimately, it's an irrational thing when you join a startup. The odds are heavily against you, and you're doing it because it, you just believe in the vision and want to build something. Um, 
So I knew like the net NPV, the expected net present value of going to the startup was like highly negative, certainly coming coming from the investment management world. Um, but the learning curve was much higher and I, and I got to focus on something I was really interested in. Um, so, you know, for me, still feeling I was relatively young, it was something I wanted to do. And, and that's one thing I can't emphasize enough is that startups are very much a young person's game. You, ideally, you do your startup when you're 18 to 25 or even before you're 30 because it, it gets harder every decade afterwards. And it doesn't mean that there aren't great entrepreneurs who are older, um, but a lot of them have tried and failed multiple times in their youth or tried and had modest successes. Um, there are very few people that I think make it on their very first uh, attempt. That that sort of leads me to wanting to ask about the timeline of going into finance, which I think some people who listen to this podcast who are considering going into the world of banking are one of the one of the issues with going into a startup at the beginning is yes, we have energy, we have time, we have a low risk um, that we're taking by going to work with the startup, but the what we sacrifice is that career in finance because we can't go become an analyst when we're 25 and we're done with our first startup. Uh, perhaps you go back to business school and get a role based on that, but typically it's not, it's not the same uh, sort of ease of entry that there would be right after school. So what would you say to somebody who is considering those two options, but that's what's holding them back? Well, so I, I think it's perfectly okay to go get experience in both of them and see which one you're best suited for. Um, and you can start in tech and then, and then go into some finance role or start in finance and go into tech. Um, I, I think the more technical skills you have, the easier it is to get into either. Um, but I, I think if you really don't know, then you just want to explore and, and spend, let's say, 18 to 24 months in each role or each world to get a sense of what you like or dislike. Um, that being said, they're, they're very different worlds with very different pluses and minuses. So um, I think the best way to do it is just to go intern. <laughs> for three to six months in each world. And then you should be able to get a lot of signal from that and, and therefore not have to waste uh, a full 18 to 24 months on it. I'm curious how you balance your time during, during all of it. In the world of trading, in the world of startups and even big tech, it seems like you're always drinking out of a fire hose, but you have so many different, different interests. Like how do you go about managing that time? Yeah, so I, I think self-discipline, habit forming, and time management are hugely important. I, I wish I had, you know, the golden key and, and knew how to do it perfectly. I don't. I think everyone's trying to figure it out. Um, it does get harder the more obligations you have. So um, if you have kids, if you have a home and a mortgage and house projects, um, if you have a serious relationship, you know, spouse, uh, those are all going to take away time. So... Um, I think it's just being able to prioritize like what's really important to you, uh, not just for the next six to 12 months, but over a longer time period for five or 10 years. Do you have some vision of something you want to build or something you want to accomplish? Um, I think the classic example is, you know, Elon Musk, right? He wants humans to be multiplanetary and go to Mars. And he wants us to beat climate change. And he thinks electric cars is a good way to do it. Um, but I think if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs and really ask them, they've got long-term visions of what, why they built their company and where they wanted to go. That's not just about making money. Um, and I think every individual should really think about, hey, like, what's my long-term vision? What's my calling? What do I care about? Um, and then work backward from that vision to whatever their career is going to be. 
So how did you get into crypto and were your reasons for being interested more philosophical or were they more investing based? I'm, I'm interested in crypto philosophically, technically, uh, and from an investment perspective, um, but also from an artistic perspective. So I probably have four reasons to be interested in crypto. Um, the philosophical bit is super fascinating, right? It's, it's a decentralized world. It's trying to upend nation states and existing political institutional structures. There's so much interesting stuff happening there. Um, from a technical perspective, it's the next generation of internet protocols. Um, the, the internet is only, let's say, years in from design, maybe 30 years in from being applied to the world. And, and I think of internet as a three to 500 year phenomenon that's massively going to change what it means to be human. So we're still very, very early in terms of what the internet is doing and crypto is part of that. So that's the technical portion. Um, the third portion is the artistic portion. I just think there's a lot of cool stuff happening with people just hacking weird stuff. Um, everything from NFTs to strange smart contracts to you know, weird apps. Uh, and then finally, there's the investment portion, which is if you invest in the right protocols early and can hang on, you, you can make a fortune. Um, but I mean, honestly, like my crypto investing, I don't have very high confidence in it. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. So I only invest in, in money that I'm comfortable completely losing. And if I do well, that's fine. But it, it's not the primary reason I'm in crypto. So it, it, it kind of right now, um, the crypto movement kind of reminds me of the saying of in every generation when all of your nerdy hacker friends start moving from the big companies to to a different industry like there could be something there um could you just explain what web3 means to you because i think a lot of people have a pretty um not narrow view but assume it only means crypto or or digital assets yeah so web3 is the third or fourth version of, of what the internet could be. So web one, you could say started in the early 90s. Um, really, really as browsers took off, what web one went with it because people could have a visual internet. Web two, early 2000s, like 03, 04, after the tech crash, um, involved uh, people getting more interactive and generating the web themselves, a lot through user-generated content, um, but then eventually through apps and mobile apps. Um, Web3, I date around 2016, so we're already like five years into it, but you know you can date it in different, different years. Uh, I wrote an essay where I, I, I think it has at least five parts, um, and I don't think anybody truly knows what Web3 is, first of all. People come out and say, hey, it's blank, and I think it's like they're feeling you know, the elephant's trunk or the, elf, the elephant's leg, like they found one part of it, but not all of it. Um, but the five parts I've identified um, is, is all the crypto stuff and decentralized uh, tech like blockchains and Merkle trees. Uh, the second thing is open data and, and data that's accessible to, to anybody who knows how to use it. Uh, the third is open AI, which is having models and uh, libraries that you can do, use to do really interesting things with data and build really interesting apps. Um, the fourth item uh, is basically all the stuff around metaverse and virtual worlds um, and how do you you know create these massive creator economies that can live from flat screens all the way to AR VR uh, and the fifth one uh, I would put as um, open hardware or very cheap hardware people can then hack and build interesting stuff with 
Um, so each of them kind of have a bunch of interesting stuff going on. A lot of the hype today is just on the crypto and decentralization stuff. Um, but all five are linked in really interesting ways. And I'm sure there's more than those five, but those are the five that, that I've identified. So one of those five was the metaverse. And I think a lot of people struggle with the concept of the metaverse because similar to blockchain just being about cryptocurrency, the metaverse is, um, they, they, have, they, have one, they have a narrow view, like Austin said. Um, and it's been around for a while, right? Like Club Penguin or Minecraft or Roblox. But what is so special about the current version of the metaverse? Is it economic empowerment? Is it because people are spending more time virtually you know, online than they are in real life at this point? Does it have to do with COVID? Is it just the push of big tech? And of course, Facebook changing the name. There's a variety of reasons. What, what, do, you think, uh, what do you think is the reason for the metaverse's like emergence right now? Yeah, so the metaverse has been creeping up on us for a long time. Um, I, I think with early AR, VR, everything from the Google Glass to um, Oculus and, and Sony PlayStation building these goggles and sort of HTC. Um, but you've had, you know, these digital worlds, everything from the massive multiplayer online um, games that have been going on for 10 to 20 years. Um, I think what you've learned from that is people like being in virtual worlds where they can be present in some sort of 2D or ideally a 3D sort of way. Um, they like interacting in ways that are just different than you can do in the physical world. And you can have these massive economies um, where people participate and they're both creators and consumers in the digital realm. The probably the things that have sped it up, um, you've definitely had better bandwidth, better home internet and, and 5G for mobile that I think is, is one big accelerator. Um, I think the other big accelerator is COVID's forced a bunch of people to make a huge chunk of their life digital. Um, and as they go digital, 2D just isn't as satisfying. Uh, it's okay if you spend two to three hours a day in 2D, but if you go eight, 10 hours or more, you know, it's not as great. Um, so yeah, I, I think the metaverse in some form has been around for a while which have had a bunch of these accelerating events that have happened um, in the last two to three years that, that are pushing it forward. Um, and, and, and I think it's going to be decades before we have, you know, a full ready player one like metaverse, um, but we're definitely on that path towards it. So I was just about to bring up ready player one and that future vision for the metaverse. What would, what is your long-term vision of what the metaverse would look like by maybe 2040 or 2050? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question, right? Because it's like, well, what's my long-term view for the internet? Because the metaverse is just the next you know, evolution of the internet. Um, but in some ideal view, I would say, you don't want any government or company to control it. You want you know, all the countries and all the companies and all, all the people in the world to have some stake uh, in it. Um, you want it to help people to be creators and be productive. You don't want it to just be for entertainment or for um, grabbing people's attention and making them you know, automatons. Um, fundamentally, it's, it's going to empower a lot of economic growth. Um, so both from being more productive as creators, but also just as being a, a way to get a lot of transactions and a lot of work done in a much more effective way. Um, so those are like three of the big things I could think of, but there's probably, if you really think about it, probably dozens of things that, you know, you'd want the metaverse to be um, as, as the future of the internet and, and in a way that humans fundamentally connect and transact every aspect of their life on it. it it's interesting you, you talk about humans becoming like automaton where 
um, especially as this transition to the digital world um, come, comes along. And it's funny how right now with the emergence of NFTs, I just think back to my days of playing like video games like Team Fortress 2, where people would obsess over hats. And now we're seeing NFTs becoming these really powerful um, kind of social and, and, and cultural ways to express yourself on the internet. Like how, how are metaverse and the NFTs going to, to be used um, in parallel? Yeah, so NFTs, and I think are just one example of, of digital assets. Um, I have a thesis that long run, our society is dematerializing, which is the amount of physical objects we consume, the amount of atoms we consume goes down. Um, and we live more and more of our life uh, in, in, in virtual spaces and digital spaces. And, and just the digital world becomes a lot more important. So you can see from everything from the amount of time you spend not on digital devices to even things like cash, like how much cash and coins are you carrying around versus you know, you can do digital transactions. So as you spend more and more per time in digital spaces and screens and so on, um, basically digital assets become a lot more important than physical assets. So things that used to matter like cars, you know, 30 years ago, cars were the big thing that everybody needed to have. Today, it's kind of annoying to have a car. It's better to be able to borrow one, Uber and so on. And you can just use your phone as a way to connect to people. Um, but I think that bigger trend of dematerialization means digital assets are a lot more important. And NFTs are, are one way we've been able to show that digital assets can be scarce and permissioned and um, allow people to be unique and, and individual. Um, but they have problems too. So the NFTs aren't, aren't just you know, um, a positive thing. So they come, come with positives and negatives and we have to figure out like how to, how to work through them. One of the things you mentioned about the metaverse um, in the future is that it shouldn't be controlled by any particular government or central authority. Um, and of course, one of the benefits of Bitcoin as a particular cryptocurrency is that it is uh, incredibly secure, more so than even other cryptocurrencies. But that comes, as far as I understand, at the extent of power usage uh, based on the whole proof of work uh, mining model. Can you give your perspective on what the trade-offs are there? Like, do you support Bitcoin despite the fact that it's so energy intensive? Um, is the trade-off worth it for that added security? So I support Bitcoin as a government independent project uh, and as a store of value. Um, and it's done fantastically well. It's one of the most important tech projects in the last 10 years. It's relatively simple. It's kind of showed us what blockchains and Merkle trees can do and has tons of positives. Um, on the negative side, yes, you've got the massive energy consumption. So I don't think Bitcoin is long-term sustainable because it, it, it sucks up too much energy. Um, the downside of decentralization is it's very hard to get people to agree on improving things and going forward. So the Bitcoin community tends to be very traditional and therefore the project hasn't grown and evolved like a typical tech project or open source project. So I, I'd say like when you, when you look at it overall, I'm really glad Bitcoin exists, but I'm doubtful it has as bright a future over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, I think it's possible another coin or chain will come, which has all the benefits of Bitcoin, but fewer of the downsides, i.e. not as much power consumption, um, and finding better ways to get the owners to coordinate and improve the system. Um, so whether the Bitcoin people will take the initiative 
and solve both those problems themselves, or somebody else will come and disrupt Bitcoin down the road uh, as TBD. Um, but that's kind of how I think about it. You know, it's funny that whenever whenever I hear that question of how energy intensive it is, no one really asks how energy intensive is AWS or how energy intensive is Fortnite, where you have millions of people playing at the same time, or how energy intensive is Facebook. Um, they all provide their respective values, but there isn't like this massive motivation um, to focus on, on on this one problem. But I'm, I'm curious to hear what projects in crypto or Web3 more broadly you're most excited about. Yeah, I mean, each of those buckets has projects that I read about it in that um, Substack post I had. But in crypto in particular, and I wrote a whole essay on, on just the crypto projects. Um, I mean, everything from the compute chains, right? Is it is it Ethereum that wins or is it Solano or Cardano or, 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 some, or someone else, right? Um, I think it's really important. Um, everything on, on the storage chain side. So how do we get permanent storage? We have IPFS, but then we have projects like Filecoin and Arweave, and I'm sure there are other ones out there too. Um, we've got a bunch of projects in identity, um, you know, social media. So they're all interesting. I think fundamentally, if you have a framework in terms of what makes a particular pro uh, project uh, succeed in a different space, um, so I don't have like a huge amount of confidence that this particular project is going to win. Uh, to me, like the clear winners so far are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, Ethereum probably has a slightly buyer future in the next five years in Bitcoin, um, but they're the clear winners for the time being. And then you really have to figure out for all the different projects um, out there, which ones are actually adding end user value. But they're not hyped just because of investors or people showing them, but we're actually used for real use cases and that winnows out a lot of the projects down to a handful. So for example, a problem that I think people need to solve is decentralized information transfer. How do you have decentralized APIs? Um, Chainlink is an example of a project that's trying to figure that out. There's some other ones doing it. Um, I don't know who's gonna win, but whoever figures that one out uh, will do quite well. And same for the storage of the computer. So this is touching a little bit more on maybe what you worked on over at Amazon, but. AI will probably play a pretty massive role in the future of Web3, especially as content creation moves from centralized corporations like record labels and over to a decentralized network of individual creators. How do you think that AI will affect how people create content and use the internet in the age of Web3? Yeah, so we're still very early for there to be AI-powered content creation tools. Um, I think those are going to be some of the most interesting startups in, in the next 10, 15 years. What's hard about it is it takes a lot of expertise to run um, AI right now. It, there's no off-the-shelf AI that's easy to do. Even if you're taking an open source model, uh, setting up the infrastructure, getting them all to work, getting up the app for your use case, um, it's, it's just a hard thing to do. Um, so the teams that are willing to come and do that, I think will create some really awesome, you know, AI gener uh, generative tools. Um, but having seen even large companies struggle to like build these tools inside, uh, it, it's not an easy thing. So uh, whoever comes and does it and, and empowers a bunch of creators will have um, huge rewards in front of them. Um, but the fundamental skill set of, of knowing how to use AI models is still a pretty rare one. 
and and the large companies tend to suck up all the talent. So um, again, if you're going and doing it independently, you kind of have to have a a wild vision and a non-economic reason while you're doing it. Hmm. So in terms of economic reasons for doing it, this is a question that came from our last guest who uh, worked at an AI VC, but I'm going to ask it more from the crypto perspective. In the next 30 years, let's say, there will definitely be a company that reaches a trillion dollar valuation in the crypto space. What do you think that company will do other than banking and transactions, something like Coinbase? Yeah, so I, I think there's going to be multiple trillion dollar crypto projects, um, whether they're structured as a, as a typical company, i.e. a Delaware C-Corp, or whether they're structured as a DAO or something really strange, who knows? Like, I'm really curious to see how that plays out. If DAOs and, you know, Wyoming DAOs overcome the Delaware C-Corp, it's like one of the great questions of the next few decades. And just before moving on, could you briefly define just for the listeners what a DAO is? Yeah, so a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. It's basically a bunch of people coming together and using code and a few other tools to organize uh, a common group activity. Um, usually, you know, it's been used a lot for strange political and in some cases economic crypto projects that will start up like entities. Um, but they're usually pretty disorganized and therefore they none of them have done as well uh, as startups. I mean, you could argue that Bitcoin's the OG DAO, right? It's totally decentralized. It's just making decentralized. We're trying to figure it out, maybe even Ethereum. Um, but it, it's still an organizational structure we're trying to figure out. And a lot of people think it'll be the organizational structure that, that replaces the modern corporation. So on, on that note, are there any really cool DAOs that you're looking at right now or contributing to? Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of DAOs I watch. Like there's, there's, no, there's none of them that I've actively joined. I'm actually looking for a DAO that I believe in its mission enough to join um, because it's a lot of work, it's chaotic. There's like no, there's no real upside other than just interacting with the chaos and seeing what you learn alongside it as far as I can tell. Um, but like, there's a DAO called Flamingo DAO that, that uh, buys NFTs and it's like an art collector DAO. Um, there's an, a recent DAO I just came across that's trying to like buy real estate um, and get people to like build a city from scratch. Uh, I think in Wyoming, I forget the name of it. It had a real interesting name, but, but there's all sorts of weird ones out there. And, and I'm just trying to get a sense of which ones are, are more legit and have some promise versus which ones are just, you know, hype and, you know, proofery. Yeah, I mean, I, I think DAOs have been really cool just because of how little friction people are able to just get together and, and all start contributing and working on something. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard of Vita DAO, but um, they're pretty much like funding longevity research and, and funding the most promising um, like research projects there. I, I, I had an idea of, of starting a DAO where everyone buys a restaurant and ownership into the DAO means like you can cook for a meal for, for a day or free or free meals or something like that. Um, but you, you should, you should start a DAO about dead languages, something, uh, something along that movement. Yeah. I mean, I've thought about what would be interesting DAOs. I, I think for the time being, I just want to join one of the better run ones and figure out, um, like how things work before I start coming up with my, with my own ideas. Um, I like Vita DAO. That's like one of the, the DAOs that I've heard 
that seem more promising. I haven't really delved in, into the projects that they're funding. There are a lot of like poorly thought out DAOs. The Constitution DAO like got a lot of marketing. Um, well, it's kind of dumb because they were they were raising small dollar amounts with huge transaction fees, and then once they lost, they had no real way of refunding people back their money, and they had no real governance structure. The, the whole thing was just very poorly thought out. So it's a good example of a DAO failing. Kind of what we can learn from it. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think for me, like I don't have that much bandwidth. So when and if I join a DAO, I want it to be something that is just fun and or, or I really like what they do, but it's mostly for learning because I know at least in, in, in the short term, I don't think any of them are, are going to, you know, by themselves challenge the, the corporation right away in, in terms of, you know, growing the way Bitcoin has or Ethereum has. But but I could be wrong and, and hopefully I'm wrong and, and I picked the right DAO to join. So your writings show that you have clearly thought deeply about inequality and capitalism and the institutions behind the change in our world. And I think many people would say that right now we're at a peak of distrust and poor policy and division across the country. My first question going off of that is, do you agree? No. So I think if you study American history, you had greater peaks of disagreement and discussion and disagreement and dissension before the Revolutionary War, for 10, 10 to 20 years before the Civil War, um, certainly through the Great Depression, there were a lot of heated periods. Um, even the 60s got quite heated. So I, I think if you look at the big picture, you know, maybe the current last five years makes the top 10 in terms of the worst, but I don't think it's even in the top three. And I think people just don't have the perspective of American history. So maybe in their lifetime, it seems like bad, like 1970s onwards. Um, but there clearly were a lot worse times uh, in the past. But I think democracies are messy and you're going to go through times like this naturally. I think that there's a good faction of the crypto and blockchain movement, which talks about the movement of governance into decentralized states over time. And to some, that's a pretty fringe theory. But for example, Balaji, the former CTO of Coinbase, has talked about uh, America itself not existing in its current state by 2040. I think that that is a pretty fringe perspective. But going off of the previous question, what do you think America is going to look like in the next 50 years? And how is Web3 shaping that future? Yeah, so I'm ultimately a huge optimist. I think America in 2050 is going to be a lot wealthier, a lot more democratic, a lot more prosperous, a lot more interconnected than what it is today. Um, I think we'll have, we'll have beaten climate change by then, and we'll have a whole new set of other problems to figure out. Um, I think fundamentally, a lot of the Web3 stuff is just the core of the internet, so it's going to be a core of the infrastructure powering everything we do. Um, but ultimately, like we have to figure out, hey, what are the problems you want to solve? And I mean, we're fortunate that we're a rich country that's pretty well governed, that has a pretty good set of benefits. Um, most of the world doesn't have what we have. So do we just turn inward and just focus on our narrow interests? Or do we really try to help different parts of the world in, in a way that's truly friendly and helpful and that's not overly dominating? So I, I think there's a lot of interesting issues for the world in, in 2050. Um, but I, I'm much more of an optimist than most people in terms of what that will look like. But while also you know, agreeing that there's a range of outcomes that could happen and there are some dark outcomes, but I see them as lower probability outcomes and we'd have to have sustained bad leadership uh, before those negative outcomes happen.
Well, I think that we've sort of gotten to the, the end of topics there. I don't want to get too far past the downfall of America. You mentioned earlier in the conversation, finding your calling as a, as a young person and using that to find direction throughout your life. Um, the question we like to ask at the end has to do with finding that direction. Um, and being asked this question helps us find our direction, I would say, for, for both Alston and myself. Um, but the question is, when you're at the end of your life and you're on your deathbed and you're looking back at your whole life, what are the metrics that you are going to use to define whether you are successful or not? Sure. Great question. Um, I'll start with the easier one about finding your calling. Um, there's a concept in, in modern reinforcement learning called explore exploit, um, which is when you don't really know your environment or even know yourself, you want to spend more time exploring and trying a bunch of different things. Um, and you don't want to prematurely commit to yourself to something the way like, you know, a 17 year old may commit themselves to be a pre-med. Um, but if you have explored enough and gotten a decent amount of experience, at some point you want to figure out the intersection of what you're really passionate about, what you're good at, and what the world values, um, and really focus and get really good at that and generate a lot of value. And, and that's the exploit part. Um, I don't think your life is just explore in your 20s and exploit the rest of it. I think you go back and forth between exploring and exploiting throughout your whole life. Um, but um, I, I'd offer that one kind of machine learning framework as a way to think about your, your lives and your careers. And there are other interesting ones, but I think that, that's the most salient one. Um, in terms of metrics, uh, when I'm in my 80s or 90s, um, I've actually realized that money and material success don't really matter that much to me. Like beyond a certain point, um, like, you know, having a comfortable lifestyle, like having more just isn't important. So I think a lot of it are things I want to build and, and do over the course of my life. So um, like after enough exploring and testing things, um, I love the world of investing in finance, but I, but I love the world of AI and building stuff even more. So I think one of the great projects uh, in the world of AI um, are building a bunch of weak AIs that can solve very specific problems. So everything from um, self-driving cars to better medical systems. Imagine, you know, 8 billion people having cheap, free, cheap to free primary care um, to all sorts of things around content recommendation um, and, and other problems like that. So to be able to work on multiple of those projects that I find interesting, um, and then over time make progress towards strong AI or, or what's sometimes called AGI or artificial general intelligence, um, which is beings that, um, aren't exactly exactly humans, but are on par with us with some form of intelligence. And their form of intelligence might be very different to us the way you know, a, a bird's intelligence is very different to a primate. Um, but I do think we're gonna make massive progress on that and creating AGI that's thoughtful, caring and helpful and not just cold and evil, I, I think is one of the great uh, projects or problems of our lifetime. So just the weak AI, I think we've got a hundred years of cool stuff to build and being able to work on those projects, I find super motivating. Um, but if we can build strong AI and find a way to interface that strong AI with some sort of you know, neural link in future humans, um, we start getting into really interesting like transhuman views of what it means to be human uh, over the course of our lives. And I think that's just such a big jump uh, compared to where we have been in most of you know, human history. So the stuff I'm looking at is how do I make progress there? And then just how do I have like 
you know, an interesting, healthy, you know, life with friends and family and, and things like that. Well, that's a great, thoughtful and well-explained answer. And I think the, uh, the explore exploit metaphor is a great place to leave off sort of circling us back from the beginning when we were talking about different ways to think about the world through different languages like, like that of AI and ML. So this has been super interesting, everyone. Thank you very much for coming on. We have learned a lot. And yeah, I think as we get deeper into this space, um, we can talk again in the future. This has been great though. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks for the great questions. Hopefully this is helpful. And, uh, you know, we're glad to hear your feedback and what you thought uh, of my answers too. So, and, and we'll have to share. Also, I think it'd be a great blog post as you ask more people some questions to, to write out like what different people have written for the metrics when you're 80. Because I'm really curious to see, hear how other people answer that. Um, and that, that's one where I, what's that? You have to listen to the others for that. <laughs> yeah, but. No, I, we, we actually have talked about having sort of like an end of year post. So I think that's a good idea. Um, it, it is, there are a lot of parallels though. Yours is probably the most unique one that we've gotten. Um, and usually they're, they're, usually it's sort of just like, I want to make people happy or I want to have had a good impact on people's lives, like that kind of thing. And it really mostly circles around that. Um, but it, it has been interesting to, to get different answers to that. And just like the whole, how do people move throughout life? Like, are they... Basing it on financial success, or, you know, or whatever else. But that being said, something I, I would actually like to stick in is for our listeners, uh, if they want a place to go and find you, I'd love to plug any links or social media that you might want to recommend. You want to plug some sort of link to your blog or Substack or anything else? Yeah, I mean, all all my writings and links to my Substack and, and Twitter are all on my personal website. So it's rauhacker r a o h a c k e r dot com, and you can kind of see everything I've written and link out to me in social. So it's the best way to kind of see what I'm doing. And um, I love to hear from people too. Like if I'm publishing things on Substack and you have strong opinions for or against, uh, I love to hear, hear from people on that. Love to hear it. Well, I'm sure some people will have will have some thoughts and uh, and we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Gilbert. Thanks, Austin. Good questions. Nice talking. <laughs>